Tonight is caucus night in Iowa, and it's the first time we'll get a pulse of the race for the Republican presidential nomination. There's not much at stake for Democrats who moved Iowa back in the political calendar, but we'll get a better sense if Donald Trump has the commanding edge in the Republican Party's race or if he's got a viable pursuer or two. Somewhere in those, amid those deep Iowa snowdrifts and frozen landscape is Clay Masters, the newest member of NPR News political team. We'll check in with him a bit because he's on the move. To start, we're here in studio in a toasty warm studio with three-term Secretary of State Steve Simon. He's the Democrat who got more votes than anybody else in a 2022 partisan election in Minnesota. He's also president-elect of the National Association of Secretary of States, so he knows a bit about elections. Secretary, thanks for coming here. Thanks for having me. So Iowa, you know, we're going to focus a lot on that today, but it's not the only place where people can vote in the presidential race this week. Where else will people cast ballots? In Minnesota. Uh, This coming Friday, January 19th, is the beginning of the absentee voting period for our own presidential nominating primary. Now, game day for that election is March 5th, Super Tuesday. We join a bunch of other states in having our primary that day. But absentee voting starts in four days. We are very much in it. So that's coming up. And if your listeners want to know where or how to vote absentee, they can go to our website, mnvotes.gov. Just to tell us a little more about how people can access that ballot if they want to get a jump start on things. Yeah. Well, there are a couple ways to vote absentee. First is to have the ballot come to you. You can go to that website, mnvotes.gov, order the ballot to come to you, vote from your couch, vote from your kitchen table. The other way to vote, of course, absentee is in-person absentee. And there, depending on where you live, it might be a city hall or a courthouse or a government building of some kind, you can go to our website and figure out where that is. So those are the two options to vote before game day, before March 5th. And of course, there's always the option to go in on March 5th to your neighborhood polling place and cast a ballot that more traditional way. Now, can you do some level setting for us? Uh, How does a primary like this differ from, say, a state primary where candidates for legislative, congressional, or statewide office are chosen? Well, in the latter, in the August regular primary, it's about winnowing multiple people running for a particular office uh, from a particular party. So if there are five candidates for state auditor on the Republican side, one will emerge from the primary on the general election. Here, this presidential nominating primary is just really a delegate selection process. It's an intra-party affair, though the state helps to run it in, in states like Minnesota. But it really is about allocating delegates to a national convention for this one office for president of the United States to determine a particular party's nominee. So you're talking about the national conventions that each party will hold this summer. This determines who gets to send their people. Exactly right. And, and are all the party races on one ballot? No, they're not. That's another thing that's unusual, at least for Minnesota, is unlike the August primary, where you go in, and you get one unified ballot, and you have to stay on one side of the ledger. You can only vote in the Republican primary or the Democratic primary, for example. Here, the voter will be asked to select a particular ballot. It is separated. So you have to ask for the Democratic Party ballot or the Republican Party ballot, for example. That's unusual. And 2020, recall, was the first presidential primary in Minnesota in decades. Before that, Minnesota had selected, the parties in Minnesota had selected their delegates to their summer national conventions through the caucus process. But in 2020, for the first time, this is now the second time, in 2024, we're doing it by a primary. So people are getting more used to this, but it takes some getting used to because people aren't uh, necessarily accustomed to um, 
that, that sort of separation of the parties that way. So last I checked, Minnesota doesn't have party registration as a lot of places do, as Iowa does and in some other states. So how do these poll workers know if I'm coming and asking for the Democratic ballot, the Republican ballot, or the legal marijuana now ballot, right. how do they know which one I should get? They don't know. You have to tell them. And so it's up to the voter to select which ballot that they want, and they can select any ballot. There's no loyalty test. There's no oath that you have to take uh, necessarily. And so you can ask for whatever ballot there is. But, um, but there are some parameters you have to yes, attest in some, to some degree. What, what do you have to say? You do. By selecting that party's ballot, you say, in essence, I don't have the exact language, but it's like that you generally support the principles of that party and intend to, that's the key language, you intend to vote for those candidates um, later in the year in a general election. So that's really it. And so you go in and you ask for that particular ballot. And so the voting starts this week, but nothing will be opened or tabulated until March. So there's still you right. know, several weeks between now and then. Right. Yeah. I always um, add that. And, and thanks for the opportunity, which is just because you can vote absentee, there's no little sub tally behind the scenes. Nobody knows and nobody calculates who's sort of ahead going into uh, game day, which in this case would be March 5th. That doesn't happen. They are processed. The ballots are processed and they're ready to be counted by Election Day. But it's only that. It's a processing. They're not counted or tabulated. You've known since uh, mid-December, so almost a month ago, who is going to be on these ballots. Not every one of those candidates is still going to be in the race, or some have already exited the race. Right. Uh, what happens if the person that I cast my early vote for hits the bricks? That could very well happen, right? You could have someone vote, say, this Friday absentee, and that person, by the time of the March election, um, might not be on the ballot. I will say there is an opportunity in Minnesota um, within two weeks before the election to claw back your ballot. Mm. And this is something for every election in Minnesota, a, a regular primary, a general election. Within two weeks, you can, if you send in your absentee ballot on Friday, January 19th, and then your candidate drops out, within two weeks of March 5th, you can go to your elections office and claw that thing back and say, give it back to me. Uh, I want to recast my vote because my candidate dropped out. I want to vote for a candidate who's still in the race. But you, you typically don't advise voters as to how they should vote, but they have many opportunities to vote. Is this one of those cases where maybe you should wait, just given that these things, these presidential primaries are volatile and uh, less work on your people, more certainty around what candidates you'll get to choose from? Yeah, that's not bad advice, I would say, uh, because it is so volatile. People actually drop out of the race. That's not the case in a general election. You don't see people dropping out between the start of an absentee ballot period and the actual election. Okay, so once we get to the point where these ballots are counted and the election is over, what happens to those voter rosters? Because you'll have chosen a particular ballot. Do, do people know? Who knows which ballot I chose? And this has been the subject of a lot of debate at the legislature. Um, here's the rule, and it's an improved rule based on what it was in 2020. In 2020, the rule was... The record of which ballot the voter chose was available. It was not public, thank goodness, in my view, but it was available to all the participating parties, all of them. Uh, we managed to push to close that loophole a bit, not as far as I would like, but at least in the right direction. So now the only entity that knows which ballot the voter chose is the party that whose ballot the voter chose. So if a person goes in and chooses the Republican party ballot for president, the Republican Party will know that. 
but the public won't know it and no one else will know it. Why is this information valuable to the parties? Oh, I think it's a goldmine to the parties uh, to, to have a self-selected group of folks coming in and saying that they um, have gravitated towards a political personal, uh, a particular political party uh, in a high-profile contest. It shows a certain um, not only loyalty but intensity of feeling. So it's the kind of thing that parties really, really want to get their hands on. And this is a party-driven process. I want to emphasize that because it's come up in, in litigation around this. But this is something that the public is paying for, right? I mean, right. and, and what, what does something like this cost to pull off? I can tell you because we've been asked to price it. So uh, ever since this started in 2020, um, the arrangement has been that we, in the Office of Secretary of State, will reimburse local governments for their, basically, their out-of-pocket costs. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's a good way to think about it. And so we, every four years, are tasked with modeling what that's going to cost. And our best estimate this time is it will cost somewhere between twelve and fourteen million dollars. So, so twelve to fourteen million dollars for this one election uh, to choose delegates to the national convention. Right. Okay. So, so this is akin to the election preseason. We've talked about that. The regular season that's still a ways off, but you're doing some work now to get the broader election infrastructure ready for that August primary and then the general. Right. Tell us more about what you're doing. Yeah. Well, putting on an election is always a team sport. We have a role to play in our office, but for example, we don't count votes. I always remind people of that. Our office, the Office of Secretary of State, we never touch a ballot, ever. That all happens at the local level. So our partners in counties and cities and towns, they have a role to play too. So we have constant communication with them. And in fact, just last week, we did a training exercise with the Department of Homeland Security, with FBI, with the U.S. Uh, uh, Postal uh, Inspection Service, uh, with a bunch of other federal and state law enforcement and intelligence agencies. We at Camp Ripley uh, got together with a bunch of counties and cities from across the state, and we put on a sort of security exercise testing um, stress points in the system. Um, whether it's cybersecurity, whether it's AI considerations, whether it's mis- and disinformation. Um, and these exercises are really valuable uh, because everyone is in the room from all levels of government. We test out various scenarios. This isn't the uh, first or only one of these that we're going to do. We also reach out to our federal partners to um, ask them to do penetration testing on our systems, which is a fancy word for them trying to hack us. <laughs> um to, to determine the strength of our system and, and to identify any weaknesses and fix them as soon as we possibly can. So those are just some of the things that we're doing now in January to prepare for this entire season, which will culminate in November, on November 5th. So, Mr. Secretary, what do you see as the bigger risk, some sort of cyber intrusion to the elections or or this continued distrust of the system and disinformation? I think it's disinformation. I think that's the number one threat to democracy generally in this country and in Minnesota. And by the way, let me just say for your listeners, when I talk about disinformation, I'm not talking about disagreement. That's perfectly okay and fine and welcome. If someone has a different opinion than I do on what makes a good election system, bring it on. Let's, let's have that discussion. When I talk about disinformation, I'm talking about the knowing and willful spread of false information about what the system is. We can always have the debate about what it ought to be, what laws we should add or subtract or anything like that. But when I talk about disinformation, it's this poisonous spreading of knowingly false information for political purposes about what the system is, how it actually operates. That's a problem. It's a problem on multiple levels. And AI, for example, in recent months and really the last year, is really just an amplifier 
uh, of of that real th- threat. I mean, I think it's uh, uh, same poison, different bottle. You're getting to some of these election climate issues. I mean, presidential election years typically see heavy turnout in, in a hypothetical scenario where it's Donald Trump and Joe Biden again. Some voters might feel disheartened by their choices. I mean, do you envision a scenario where turnout is lower than we've had in the past? And how real is that possibility? You know, it's certainly possible. And, and you know, you hear a lot of punditry about people aren't um, particularly enthusiastic about that combination, that rematch. On the other hand, these are candidates, the two you mentioned, President Biden and former President Trump, if they are, in fact, the two nominees. These are people who, let's put this diplomatically, inspire strong feelings. How's that for diplomatic? Mm-hmm. These are two people who inspire a lot of strong feelings. And I have a hard time imagining... Um, this not being a very intense and therefore high turnout election. I'm going to ask you a big question, but ask for a brief answer. Uh, the legislature comes back to town in a couple of weeks. Is there anything you need from lawmakers to make this current election year go smoothly? Yeah, really quickly, I would just say some tweaks and refinements to some things that were passed last year. Um, some additional things having to do with voter registration, making it easier for a bunch of folks. Um, there are some cybersecurity things as well. But uh, it's really about beefing up what we set in place in 2023. Well, Secretary Simon, I imagine this is the first of what will probably be many times we'll have you on this year to talk about how things will run and hopefully run smoothly in this election year. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Programming is supported by Barracuda. Barracuda AI identifies and blocks ransomware before it can do any harm. Barracuda puts teeth in cybersecurity for all businesses. Learn more at barracuda.com. Fierce defenses for complex threats. I'm Brian Baxton. You're listening to NPR News. We're talking about the political landscape and the 2024 election this morning, both in Minnesota and in Iowa. And that's where we find Clay Masters, who's been moving about the state for many, many months, tracking all the presidential candidates. He's just joined us recently. And Clay, where are you today? Well, I, I'm in Des Moines, uh, just waiting for, you know, this is not the same thing as a primary election where people show up when they want to vote. This is you got to be in your precinct caucus at 7 p.m. And that's when we'll, you know, start getting the results rolling. And hopefully people will remember four years ago when there were no results <laughs> on caucus night. Hopefully that's not something we're talking about tomorrow morning. And I know I introduced you as an NPR reporter, but our listeners have probably heard you before, most likely on the Iowa leg of the presidential campaign. It's safe to say you've been down this track before, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, so this is my third uh, caucus cycle that I've covered. I've been uh, covering politics in Iowa for the last 12 years until, you know, as soon as, I guess, tomorrow, I'll I'll be covering Minnesota politics. Um, But it's been interesting watching this state, which started uh, when I got here as a very uh, purple state. It's only gone to the right over the last 12 years. And a lot of that has to do with uh, the guy who's leading the polls, uh, again, former President Donald Trump. Uh, He did a lot in 2016 to kind of tip this uh, 
state into the Republican column, uh, activating a lot of people who are first-time caucus goers. And we're seeing there's a lot of people, uh, judging by polls, if you can believe them, you know, there's a lot of first-time caucus goers going to be showing up on, uh, on tonight, too. Yeah, I'm hoping you could set the stage for us. This is one state, one that maybe isn't even demographically representative of the country. What's on the line tonight? Well, traditionally, Iowa is all just about momentum, right? 40 delegates is all that comes out of the state of Iowa. So it's not like they're, you're, you know, working really hard uh, for a, a big share of the of the pie here. You're just looking for that momentum. And uh, that has helped candidates in the past, namely on the Democratic side, uh, with Jimmy Carter and then Barack Obama. Those are the two kind of uh, you know, those are the examples that are given time and time again. Their win in Iowa set things off for them to win uh, the nomination. We haven't seen that on the Republican side. The last uh, three, we could do some trivia here. The last three <laughs> caucus winners were Ted Cruz, Rick Santorum, and Mike Huckabee. So, you know, people here always talk about Iowa is not about picking a winner. It's about winnowing the field. And uh, it's it's a pretty tough field to winnow right now, if you judge judging by the polls, which Trump has been kind of the far away uh, front runner throughout the entire 2023 and into the first part of this new year. Yeah, I've covered several of these myself, and usually the saying goes, there are multiple tickets or paths out of Iowa, the winner, and those who perform perhaps above expectations. And the state is also known for delivering some early knockout punches. Do we expect either of those to be the case here, either someone getting wind in their sails or getting uh, sent home? You know, when Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, first announced he was running back in May, he was seen as kind of the chief rival to the former president, Donald Trump. Um, We have seen since his poll numbers be pretty stagnant. He has put everything on the line in Iowa, Uh, been to all 99 of Iowa's counties. Uh, He has the unprecedented endorsement of the governor of this state. Uh, Kim Reynolds endorsed him, which it's been about 30 years since the last time a sitting governor endorsed. Uh, He has the endorsement of a big evangelical leader in the state, Bob Vanderplatz, who has picked the last three uh, caucus winners. So uh, if Ron DeSantis uh, doesn't perform well tonight, I see a hard time uh, for him moving forward, especially when in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley, the former UN ambassador uh, is, you know, getting closer to former President Trump, and uh, Trump has been, you know, dominating the polls here. Yeah, I mean, uh, let, let's back up for a second here. You, you've hosted a podcast produced by your former station, Iowa Public Radio, for a couple cycles now. It's called Caucus Land, and, and I want to play an excerpt of that, and hopefully we'll have that teed up here uh, for our audience, in which you explain what goes on at these these gatherings. And there's, you know, several hundred of them, maybe even what, 1600 of them around the state. Yeah. So people gather at 7 p.m. You show up and it took me a a while to realize really just what these are. People gather, they talk party platform uh, and people that aren't really involved in the in the political system in the state show up. You know, they think that they're just going to vote. You see a lot of people that are first time caucus goers kind of think, oh, I've got to stand around uh, for a really long time uh, to, to make my choice. And then uh, the Democrats, which have lost the first in the nation status after the debacle that was 2020, they they have a much more, uh, we'll call it uh, rambunctious caucus than the Republicans, where you've probably seen video clips of people jockeying around a room. Republicans just go in, uh, they write the name of the candidate they like after they hear some speeches from some surrogates for the different candidates. They put it in a hat, and then it's tallied up there at the end of the night. All the precincts get put together, and it's, you know, it's a it's a straw poll, essentially. Well, let's take a listen to caucus land. Why wouldn't you go to participate in the caucus then? I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just trying to yeah. understand the level of... We never have. We don't, yeah. okay. we don't know about it. We, don't, we know about it, but we've just never... Uh, okay, so this is interesting then. Would you rather 
vote in a primary than show up in a caucus. Yes. Yeah. Keith tells me he's heard stories about past caucuses where it can take hours and people are moving around the room trying to pull support from other candidates. They don't realize Democrats and Republicans caucus differently. From what I understand, the caucuses is a bunch of people standing around yelling why they think this person is better. And I don't need to I don't need to listen to that. Yeah. So the Democratic one is definitely people yelling and trying to get people to move. Republicans write the name of the candidate on like a little piece of paper and hand it in. But you still got to stand around for several hours. Okay, so there's not a lot of so. So maybe we should go to a caucus. Well, well, Clay. I mean, this is—it's going to be super cold tonight. I've, I think we've heard that quite a bit. I mean, yeah. it, do, do you expect that 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 it's the hardcore who come out? I mean, or you've talked about these first timers. Are they are they committed enough to to to, to show up? Well, I, I think we're all trying to second guess what impact the weather is going to have. Um, backing up and talking about that clip we just heard, that was outside of a bar in Council Bluffs, Iowa, which is uh, right on the other side of the Missouri River from Omaha. And the, this was a couple that you know lived in Iowa for years, knew what the caucuses were, but didn't realize just how they could participate. I and mean, they were there to see a, the, the Florida governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, speaking. So, you know, there is still an education that goes into this. And, and former President Donald Trump has started playing videos ahead of uh, his commit to caucus rallies where it's like a, you know, like a schoolhouse rock kind of video where people, they show a cartoon that's learning how to go to its caucus. And, um, and so to your original question, you know, this is a commitment. The weather is going to play an impact, I think. I don't know how it's, who it's going to benefit at this point. Uh, I think that there's been a lot of polling that suggests that uh, there's a lot of uh, people that are thinking this is a foregone conclusion, that former President Donald Trump has it in the bag. And, hey, a, a nice fire on the fireplace <laughs> and watching TV might sound better to a lot of people than, you know, trudging out into the cold, especially when you think of rural precincts where people, you know, I'm in Des Moines where the roads are fairly cleared uh, in the, the more rural parts of the state, it, it's a it's a huff to get out there and make it to your precinct. So it's going to impact someone somewhere, one of the candidates. And right now, it just needs to happen so we can see how it how it impacted the race. Well, can you talk more about how Trump has treated this process compared to that 2016 run? I mean, does this seem more professional? That one maybe more seat of the pants? How, how's this gone? Yeah, it really does. I mean, throughout 2015, when he was running the first, uh, you know, when he was running in, in 2015 and 2016, it was very much a, uh, you know, there were entertainment networks that were here that were covering him. Uh, you know, he was still just somebody that people knew from TV and from, you know, over the years and in, in magazine articles. Um, and so, this time around, it's a much more, I mean, he's not here as much as the other states. You know, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has hit all 99 counties, and we talked about everything he's done. Trump has been here several times. Uh, he holds some commit to caucus rallies. Uh, he's done some more kind of, you know, seemingly traditional Iowa caucus events where he drops in and meets with, you know, lunch for with some pastors and stops by a, uh, the, a restaurant that's known for candidates coming and talking. Uh, but this time around, it is much more of a professional uh, operation, especially when uh, what the Trump campaign wants Iowa to be is, the, like you said earlier, the knockout punch that can end this thing early. Uh, because if it's a pretty big spread on caucus night, he's been saying, hey, we can pivot to the general election and uh, make it more about uh, uh, President Biden. Because Trump's been running as an incumbent this entire time. So we've talked a lot about Republicans. What are Iowa Democrats doing right now? 
Yeah, we could have a whole show of me trying to explain what the Iowa Democrats are going to do. So the Democratic National Committee Rules and Bylaws Committee, that's a committee within a committee, asked states to uh, basically apply to go in the early window in uh, the this 2024 cycle. So uh, basically, Iowa was thrown out of the early window. So tonight, Iowa has a, this law that says it must hold the, the first in the nation caucuses. So it's kind of like playing both sides here. So they're not breaking the law. They are holding a caucus tonight, but they are going to be uh, filling out their presidential preference cards and mailing them in. You can't call them a ballot because if it starts to sound too much mm-hmm. like a ballot, then New Hampshire says, wait a minute, we're the first uh, primary election. So Democrats will be mailing in their presidential preference cards, and we won't know who the winner is until March 5th. And I should note on that uh, on that presidential preference card, Congressman Dean Phillips is one of the choices that uh, Iowa Democrats Democrats can make. Has he spent any real time down there? Absolutely not. <laughs> he hasn't been here. He's been in New Hampshire uh, because that's where there's going to be more play. Uh, Iowa is, you know, if, if he were to work really hard for votes in Iowa, you wouldn't know until March 5th when it's Super Tuesday. But you have seen some Minnesota Democrats down there. Tim Walls was there yesterday, it sounds like, and Tina Smith is on her way. What, what was Tim Walls doing? Well, Tim Walls was down here kind of counter-programming the Republican messages. You know, we've had an entire year of the Iowa media market being oversaturated with uh, Republican ads from DeSantis, Haley, Ramaswamy, and former President Donald Trump. And uh, there are, you know, no real prominent Democrats in the state right now. Uh, We've got the opposite trifecta in Iowa than the Democrats have, the DFL has up in in Minnesota. So there's, uh, you know, Tim Walls has come down here several times to speak on behalf of President Joe Biden and his message. And so people are here. Uh, Walls was basically saying it doesn't matter who is the nominee for the Republicans. There needs to be a lot of support for the president. Well, Clay, it's been great having you, your perspective on this, and we look forward to you spending some more time up here once that big show on I.O. moves on. Safe travels tonight. All right. Thanks, Brian. I'm Brian Baxt, and you're listening to NPR News. For those of you just tuning in, we've been talking about politics in the upcoming election. We heard from Secretary of State Steve Simon and NPR's new political reporter, Clay Masters. He's covering the caucuses in Iowa. NPR will have special coverage of the Iowa caucuses tonight at 7. But here to round out this hour, we've turned to a pair of political strategists who have worked on many local, state, and federal races, including for president. Jennifer DeJournet is a Republican operative and president of Ballot Box Strategies. Jennifer has traveled Minnesota extensively over the past year in an attempt to revive Minnesota's GOP fortunes after a couple of dismal elections. She's worked on Iowa caucus campaigns, too. She was deeply involved in Carly Farina's Minnesota campaign in 2016. She's joining us from Hilton Head, South Carolina this morning. Hey, Jennifer. Hello. Thanks for having me on. And Corey Day is in studio. He's been around countless campaigns as a Democratic consultant, political advisor, and past executive director of the Minnesota DFL Party. He's a vice president of the LS2 Group, a political consultancy. He was senior advisor to now President Joe Biden's Minnesota campaign four years ago. Corey, thanks for coming in. Uh, Good morning, Brian. Thanks for having me. Hey, Jennifer, I want to start with you. I was struck by a social media post from you late last week about being stranded for days in Iowa eight years ago due to poor weather around caucuses. The weather this year is treacherous. How much of a factor might that be? You know, I think people are forgetting that people in Iowa love the presidential caucus. 
I mean, these people, these presidential candidates, they see them in their homes, at their coffee shops. They might see a, one presidential candidate 10 or 15 times before they make a decision. So they're highly motivated, highly educated. In 2016, there was literally a airport shutting down blizzard, barreling down, and people were watching their clock as they were watching watching the storm come in because there were all the presidential candidates were there and they needed to get out of town so they could jump over to New Hampshire. And as soon as people voted or got off the stage given speeches, they were jumping on their <laughs> planes and leaving. And I was driving back um, after um, staffing um, uh, Frank Fury and a Carly's husband um, in Cedar Rapids that whole day. And uh, I literally got stuck in Story City. They shut down the highway behind me, shut down the highway in front of me. And thank goodness there was an exit. And I got stuck in Story City for three days. Mm. And I got the last room in this hotel because the person who ran it was a big Carly Fiorina fan. And he was saving it for someone else but gave it to me. And otherwise, I would have been in their lobby for three days. That's so maybe, maybe not the weather, but voter psychology here. If, if, if voters perceive that Donald Trump has this locked up, might that hold down turnout both among his supporters and maybe demoralized backers of other candidates? No, I think people are going to show up. I mean, Iowa caucuses aren't like a Minnesota caucus. They are a party. I mean, people come, they see speeches. Some of them have food trucks and beverage carts, and there's a lot of hoopla. And people have, like I said, have been in this for months. So will some people not show up? Yeah. If they, if they're not truly in love with their candidate and our little, just are like, I like this person, but I, I'm not going to get up and get my kids out of bed at seven o'clock and put their coats on. But the true diehard people, which is what the fundamentals of a caucus is, are people coming. But that's where our get out the vote turnout operation really matters and carpools, et cetera, all of that ground game, which is the true uh, test of, an, of a caucus, quite frankly. Corey, you worked for Joe Biden in 2020. Iowa wasn't exactly kind to him. He finished way back in the pack. But he's president now. Why do you think he was able to sustain a loss there and carry on to the nomination? Yeah, because I think. In 20, what uh, the president was doing, he was running a, a nationwide campaign. He had a strong operation in New Hampshire. He knew that South Carolina was a place where he had a strong support base. Um, you know, at, at this stage right now, you know, Iowa is not the most diverse state in the union. And I think in 2020, we knew that Iowa was a place that was going to be a little rougher for the president. But we also know that the president had an extremely diverse base of supporters. And we knew that there will be other states that the president will be strong in. Do you see that happening for Republicans not named Trump this year, being able to hang on if if Iowa deals them a, a hard hit? Well, you know, I mean, I think the kind of the, the, the going rate right now is that if Trump is able to get over 50 percent, um, it becomes really tough for the other Republicans on the ticket. I mean, if they hold him under 50 percent and they're able to have a good showing, I believe New Hampshire will be, uh, you know, a strong place for Haley or maybe DeSantis. And then obviously South Carolina is going to be the telltale for the Republican ticket, I feel. Um, you know, I feel if you're the governor of that state and you're not able to perform well, that's going to say a lot when it comes to moving down the GOP ticket in for the rest of the election for them. Yeah, in 2020, by the time it rolled around to Minnesota, Biden was in a much better place. He was well on his way to the nomination. What changed for him? 
Well, I think uh, one of the big things, obviously, was uh, Senator Klobuchar had just left the race. She had endorsed uh, the president. Um, I think that was a huge deal for that. Also, I think Minnesota had moved to the primary system. I think that made a huge difference than not having a caucus for the presidential. Obviously, I think when you do the primary system, it's far more inclusive uh, to all the voters around the state. It's much more kind of a you know, user-friendly system when it comes to just being able to show up and, and cast your ballot. And I think that really helped out President Biden in 2020. Jennifer, what, what type of campaign reassessment do you think will go on for some of these candidates after tonight? Well, I think the biggest trick in, in the Iowa caucus afterwards is did your team work well together? Did you set a strategy? Did you set a plan? Did your turnout operation work? Did you spend a bunch of money in digital? And was your pack operating correctly? All of those, um, after everyone licks their wounds, whether they're happy or sad, will go through each different piece of that, do a risk assessment and say, okay, do we need to switch people out or put them in different roles or bring more people on? And then they hit the next hurdle, which is New Hampshire which is a completely different style of campaigning and tactic. Um, and the calendar just keeps moving. And that's the thing about it is it's sort of like a really big relay race. Mm. Each different facet, each different piece of that relay has a different purpose and strategy. So you're working out the bugs as you go. And either your campaign can operate in a multi-state environment or it can't. It doesn't matter if you're good in one state and then you're crummy at another um, a presidential race is a 50-state enterprise, and you have to be able to operate to the tenor and tone of each state to win. How hard is it, Jennifer, though, to, to fight the narrative that, that your campaign is is on the way down or on the way out if, if, that's, if the result tonight and then next week's New Hampshire primary don't really provide the boost you need? Well, that's what happened to Carly, actually. She was very well positioned to the Super Tuesday states, and that was her strategy. She knew she wasn't going to do the greatest in Iowa and New Hampshire, but actually she was well poised into all the Super Tuesday states because she had fully operational teams that had been working in advance. The problem was after the first two states and she didn't perform as well as she can, she looked at her team and said, you know what? I'm just not going to be able to beat this juggernaut. Even if I perform well, I'm, you know, it's just, I just can't do it. And so she pulled out right after New Hampshire, was able to settle all of her bills, keep some money in the bank and do other things. And that's what each team will be able to decide what they need to do after this. Now, Jennifer, what's it like working on one of these national campaigns, maybe in comparison to some of these that you do more often at the state or local level? Oh, it's the funnest thing. I always say it's like the circus being in town. You meet people from all over across the country. When I was on Carly's team, I walked into the team meeting in New Hampshire when she did her kickoff and I looked around and I've never seen that many women political operatives um, at the same level working in one room. And I was like, oh my goodness, there's more of us. I, and I, I don't get that experience very often, but I have friends from all over across the country. Like I, the other day I was checking in on New Hampshire and I called my friend Carrie, who does work similar to me there. And I said, Carrie, what's the real deal? And she gave me some tidbits. And then in South Carolina, I just checked in with another friend and he gave me the tidbits there. And I have another good friend in Nevada. And she told me, duh, anything coming out of Nevada in a few weeks won't make anything because we're a hot mess. Ignore us completely. And you kind of get the behind the scenes. People think presidential campaigns are these massive, huge things. But actually, at this stage, they're really not. All the teams know each other. All the teams uh, keep in touch. And it is my favorite thing about 
politics and to do this kind of work. And Corey, what's that, that level of campaign work like for you compared to this, the other stuff you do? Yeah, um, the presidential campaigns are the best, uh, to, Jen- to Jennifer's point. Um, there's something really exciting knowing that, you know, in every state there's different teams that are working. You're all kind of pulling towards the, the same goal. Um, it's just extremely exciting. One of the things that's always interesting about it is that, you know, you're working on a national campaign, but at the end of the day, it's really localized. I mean, if you're in Minnesota, if you're in Florida, if you're in Ohio, I mean, you really get to know the folks of those different states and those, those different areas. Um, but it's an extremely exciting experience. Um, I've met some of my best friends on presidential campaigns. It's, you know, the equivalent, and I hate to even use the word going to war with someone, but when you're on a presidential campaign, I mean, you're in the trenches, uh, you're, you know, there's, there's no clocks anymore there's no you're working from nine to five hours don't matter um, it is just about getting the job done and it's just it's it's one of those things that it's almost um when you meet someone and you know they've been in the trenches they've worked a presidential campaign you always have a different respect for them because you understand what they've gone through that clock doesn't matter applies to political reporters too i know that around this time of year uh, you know i i want to turn attention away from iowa a little bit to voting in Minnesota, as we know, it starts this week for people who are anxious to get out there and cast that ballot. Jennifer, what do you expect the GOP field to look like by the time those ballots are counted in Minnesota on March 5th? Well, I think we'll definitely down, be down to three. I mean, at that point, uh, I think that the that the um, buzzsaw of Iowa, New Hampshire, and maybe South Carolina will call the field. So maybe two, maybe three at best. And the thing that surprises me this year in Minnesota politics is usually in a competitive field like this, there would be paid staffers at some point here. I know there are individuals who are working in building ad hoc volunteer teams, and I know they're trying very hard, but there, but there's a different level when somebody's, you know, making sure all the trains are running on time and all the pieces are getting done. So, um, but I do agree with Secretary of State Steve Simon. There is nothing more important in Minnesota Republican politics, or there, there shouldn't be anyway, at least, than that presidential primary. It is a goldmine of voter identification data that is coming out there at a scale that no Republican party can be able to afford. So whether you love your favorite candidate or you hate some other candidate, every single person should be driving people to that presidential primary poll like like it's nobody's business. Corey, do you expect that President Biden will have things locked up for the Democratic nomination by the time Minnesota rolls around? Yeah, yeah, I, I 100% believe that. I think we're all 100% behind President Biden. I think from, you know, the local level to the federal level, I think as you see Governor Walls out in Iowa and Senator Smith down in Iowa campaigning for the president, I think right now that we're, you know, we understand the battle that's ahead. We understand democracies on the ballot. I think all Democrats understand that at this point. And we are lockstep with the president. Um, I believe by the time Minnesota rolls around, I do believe this, uh, you know, will be very clearly focusing on a general election and looking at who our opponent is going to be in November at that point. Maybe we're tiptoeing around the, the Minnesota candidate who is on the Minnesota ballot, Dean Phillips. Uh, over the weekend, a major investment firm founder said he was kicking in $1 million into a political action committee backing Dean Phillips. Do you think that the congressman has a viable path? Uh, no, I don't. Um, and, you know, I'm a I'm a fan of Dean Phillips. I think he was a great congressman in this state and hate to see him step down. But I don't think there's a viable path right now. What we really need to be focused on is this challenge, this mega challenge that we have in front of us when it comes to democracy and all the other things that are going to be on the ballot come 
of this election cycle. And I think that's what we need to focus on. We need to really just focus on making sure President Biden returns to the White House and then looking at the elections that we have here coming up in Minnesota with the House and, you know, the and then the Congress. So I think we have some real challenges in front of us. I, you know, I understand that the congressman is, has his right to do what he wants to do. But I think right now the thing most Democrats need to really refocus on is what we have ahead of us in, in November and making sure that we defeat whoever the Republican nominee is. And Jennifer, if it's Trump versus Biden, do you anticipate that either party will put much of a focus on Minnesota in the general election? Um, you know, last time in 2016, when the Democrats really weren't that thrilled about their candidate, I mean, there was like some black, I mean, they were lackluster about Hillary Clinton. I mean, it, people don't, we got within a half of a point. Um, it, you know, that Trump almost won Minnesota. And even in 2022, I mean, you look at Ryan Wilson, he got less than 0.34% and Schultz was behind, uh, Ryan a little bit, but definitely still right there as well. The right tenor, the right tone, the right message, the right, if the progressives don't like Biden per se and decide to stay home, uh, you know, it could get closer, but I do think it'll be a struggle to fund Minnesota. I think there's a lot of other swing states that are more critical for electoral map and it's a, it's really about winning at some point. So I think there's always Trump always likes to take a look at Minnesota because he came so close and, but I, I think the other states will be more heavily funded than here. And Corey is Minnesota's got to be a must win for Biden, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is. I mean, right now the state party's been doing the 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 good work of uh, building lists, uh, building the grassroots, training activists. I mean, this work could never stops in Minnesota when it comes to the DFL and. As we move into this election cycle and as we start building our, our presidential base here, there'll be a presence from the Biden campaign in Minnesota and the state party will continue to build and work in concert on making sure that we reelect Joe Biden here in Minnesota. I and mean, we're still the longest running state to elect Democratic uh, presidents or vote for Democratic nominees. Um, and we continue to keep that. So I can, we plan on continuing to keep that streak. Uh, Jennifer, your party really hasn't had much luck recruiting a challenger to U.S. Senator Amy Klobuchar, uh, the Democrat who's running for a fourth term. Uh, sometimes that will make the money pour in if there's a if there's a lively Senate race. Has that been more or less written off? I wouldn't say written off. I think there are people that are looking at it. I think that the funding has to be there. The path has to be there. I would, you know, make sure that 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 happens first. So I know there are some people that are still kicking it around. That's difficult um, for people. I it, But I do see some perk that's starting to happen. So for example, I know there's multiple candidates now looking at the third congressional district. I know there's two that have kind of publicly announced, but there are also some really strong ones that are sitting there that are just um, doing their due diligence on it. So I think as people see those pieces pop open, that might uh, push uh, a U.S. Senate candidate over the edge. I do think we need to have one, um, one that's viable or at least hardworking with a smart team, because that does impact the Minnesota legislative races. If you don't have that connecting um, race there, the other side just has way too much money to spend um, you don't want to give Klobuchar all that money to influence other races by turnout calls and other things. So we have to find one. I know we will find one. It's just I want um, one that's going to be hardworking and, and smart along the way. Uh, 
if memory serves you, you live in the third. You could care, care to fill us in on who, who might be sniffing around that, that congressional race? I wish I could, although I've had a lot of meetings at, at the Perkins in Maple Grove recently. So <laughs> I, and I know there are some smart, good candidates out there who are thoughtful, deliberate, and, um, and respectable that people can be proud to rally around. But but let's just look at the the picture here. This uh, the, your party has won a statewide race since Tim Pawlenty in two thousand six. You worked on a campaign that got really close. We heard Kirk Doubt when he retired uh, last week, uh, the former House Speaker, say that he doesn't see a path to winning statewide anytime soon. What's what's it going to take? Well, first of all, I disagree with Kurt Dowd on that. There was absolutely a path for one candidate and probably two candidates in the last cycle. There were some technical issues that happened in terms of um, turnout in the end to base voters when um, that could have been resolved. But there was 100% a path for one candidate, uh, definitely, and like I said, the other. I think it's uh, that people need to focus and get in working, realizing that you always have to turn out your base. We have to have a real strong focus in early and absentee voting to make sure that base turns out to give the candidates a space and time to work on those persuadable independent voters. This is a fundamental mechanics problem that the Republican Party is having, not because there aren't smart, good candidates. So I love Kurt Dowd. I think he's a great guy, but I disagree that there's not a path. I think 2026, if the right candidate on a smart race can absolutely win. Um, and I, and I see the path and, and we almost did it, not just once, twice, even though the other side has had so much more money, um, than our candidates have. Um, so I think it's possible. Corey, I wouldn't give up on the Republicans yet. Corey, are you anticipating any voter backlash for things that the Democratic trifecta did at the Capitol this year? No, actually, I, I don't. I think they had a great session. I think they got a lot of, uh, obviously, I think the governor's passed more than we've seen passed in decades in this state. Um, I don't expect to see a backlash, but I also know that, um, you know, our candidates are, gonna, are out there already talking to voters, uh, explaining their record, um, running on their record, um, running on what the governor did. I know that we're already, you know, our grassroots is, is strong. I mean, as you've seen today, the the president announced his fundraising numbers with 90% of them being low, don- low, uh, low donor dollars. I mean, that's There's a lot of excitement out there at the grassroots level right now, knowing that you know the president's running, understanding the challenges we have in front of us. So um, I feel like we're in a really good, good space right now. I feel the president came out really strong when he went to Pennsylvania, his speech in South Carolina. Um, I think you know where the governor is right now, the popularity of, of members of our Minnesota House, I mean, I think we're well positioned um, moving into 24 here. And, and one of the new laws that was passed was legalizing marijuana. There were major parties built around that cause. Do you expect voters partial to that issue to reward Democrats for getting it done, or are they just going to kind of fade away? No, I mean, I think a lot of those voters were voters who, who skewed towards our issues, and I think they'll be coming home to the DFL party when it comes to the time to cast their ballots. Um, obviously, there's some fixes we still need to deal with cannabis, but I do believe that uh, the voters who formed the parties, a very active group of folks who are fighting for cannabis, um, are going to be folks that are going to find a very comfortable space with the DFL. And Jennifer, what's what's your party's path back to the Minnesota House majority and at least a foothold in state government? Yep. So I think first it's really focusing on the targeted races and the tier A candidates that we we think that 
there's a probable path there, strong candidate recruitment messaging, and employing what I consider the mayor of every town strategy, which is in a presidential year, you have to make your bases as local as possible, talking about things that matter to your own communities, because politics is a reflective exercise. The voter has to see something in you that they think that will make their lives better. So it's not about you and your issues. Um, and and then we also have to decide if there are some races that are just not ones that if you have the right candidate and they work really hard, that they can kind of sneak up and, and win. Because I do think some of the suburban races are at risk just because of the nature of, of presidential year. So you have to percolate a little bit and we have to be able to do more than one thing at one time. And make sure that all the groups are starting to work together in an effective way. And how real of a possibility do you think there will be of a winner-take-all state Senate race if the dominoes fall and, say, Kelly Morrison, a state senator now, is uh, the nominee in the third and decides to leave early? Oh, then, I, you know what? I think then people will be spending a lot of money in that district on both sides. I think when you've got into a one-seat majority, and I know that that even that one seat is kind of tenuous, in, even in the DFL caucus of what can they do and how what can they get passed, if it if there's a chance for a win there, I think that both sides will be spending millions of dollars to try to keep it because there's there'll be a lot at stake for both parties. Is that something that's worry that will worry you if if that one seat? goes on the ballot all this year yeah i mean we're worried about anything that goes on the ballot um but i, I but you know i think kelly is a, is a great senator she's done a great job i think um you know she's been very clear with the voters out there and i think some of the issues that she's fought for for you know when it comes to abortion rights and other issues are issues that i think folks have a very clear vision about what they're looking for and i think um, if Kelly's seat does come up, we'll be well positioned to maintain it and keep it in the DFL, uh, keep it part of the DFL. And your, Corey, your thoughts about the Minnesota House staying in Democratic hands? Oh, I f- no, I feel really, I feel our candidate recruitment has been strong. Um, I feel that right now that the path for the GOP, it's a very narrow path. Um, I think, you know, right now I feel well positioned come next year that we'll be strong in the suburbs, continue our strength in the city, and it will do well in greater Minnesota also and hold the seats that we have and hopefully pick up a few ex- a few, a few other seats um, up there kind of in that Iron Range Duluth area. A lot of time between now and November, so we'll be watching. Our time is up for today, unfortunately. I want to thank our guest, Jennifer DeJournet, is a political operative and president of Ballot Box Strategy. And Corey Day, he's a Democratic consultant, political advisor, and past executive director of the Minnesota DFL Party. We also heard from NPR political reporter Clay Masters and Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon. Again, tune in tonight, 7 p.m., NPR live coverage of the Iowa caucus results. And we'll be watching that and have more in the morning. This conversation was produced by Matt Alvarez. Thanks for joining and be safe.